Hey there, and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast, streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada. And however you have found our podcast, we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message, just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website, www.duncanchurch.com, you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out. Maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email. We send this out once a week. It's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online. Apart from that, there is a give button. So if you're feeling led, you can do that right online through our website. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube. We are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that God's going to do something special in you through today's message. Enjoy. We're in the book of Hebrews right now. We are actually, this is our third week now in the book. And as a church, generally speaking, we like to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through entire books of the Bible. And we started the book of Hebrews a few weeks back. Ross took us through chapter one. And uh, last time, last Sunday, we were in the book as well. I mentioned that kind of this theme, this, this overarching theme of the book of Hebrews is simply this. Basically that Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. You can even see on the slide there, it talks about a greater hope. That's what this, the, kind of the book really keeps going over and over again. doesn't matter who or what, Jesus is better. And if you remember last week, I talked about how it's kind of, Jesus is kind of like that friend that's just better at everything, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? I mentioned that last week, and thankfully, Brandon's here this morning. Welcome, Brandon. Good to see you. Because this is the friend of mine that's just better at everything that I do. Um, and so you can give him a shot in the arm, or maybe the legs to slow him down a little bit. With some of the things that we like to do together. But uh, it, it, it doesn't matter who or what, Jesus is better. And the first, the first who that the author of Hebrews kind of tackles in the study, in the book of Hebrews, is that of angels. And so Ross took us through chapter one, where, uh, where the author of Hebrews is basically driving home the fact that Jesus is better than the angels. Why? Chapter one established this. Basically because, to really sum it up, Jesus is God. I mean, you can't have more of a trump card than that. It doesn't matter who that friend is or what's going on. It's like if they lay, lay down that, well, I'm God. It's like, ah, oh, man, not beating you there, right? And so that's kind of the whole idea from chapter one is that he's God. Who or what is greater than God? Nothing. But what we're going to see in chapter two of Hebrews is that not only is Jesus the son of God, he's also the son of man. He's also the son of man. And so Jesus is better than the angels in chapter one because he's God. I mean, that's kind of obvious, but we're going to see in chapter 2 that Jesus is better than the angels because he's human. Now, I don't know if that's obvious or confusing. I consider it a little more confusing. Uh, it, one commentator puts it this way. In chapter 1, Jesus is superior to the angels because he's God. In chapter 2, he's greater than the angels because he's man. Angels aren't God, but Jesus is. And no angel ever became a man, but Jesus did. And so this morning, this is what we're going to look at. We're going to see that even in his humanity, Jesus is better or greater than the angels. Ultimately, we'll see that it's because of what Jesus could accomplish through his humanity. So why don't you grab a Bible? There will be one in the seat back somewhere in front of you. If you don't mind grabbing that and opening it up to Hebrews chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 5. And we're going to look this morning at Jesus is greater even in his humanity. Why don't we take a moment and pray first? Father, this morning, I... Um, I just want to thank you uh, for, for sending Jesus, for coming to this earth. And I pray this morning as we kind of unwrap and un, 
unpack some of that thinking, some of that thought of what does it really look like and mean, the significance of your humanity, Lord, that we would just see you still in all your greatness, that, Lord, we would not diminish you because you took on flesh and blood. In fact, it makes you greater in so many ways still. And so, Lord, open our eyes. Show us this morning. Teach us, we pray. We thank you and we love you for your word. Amen. All right. The first thing that we're going to see is that Jesus is greater even in his humanity because in it he regained dominion that we lost. Okay? So we're going to see that. He regained, through becoming human, he regained the dominion that we as humans lost. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. So the idea here, Jesus is greater than the angels, verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Let me ask you this. Who will reign in Christ's kingdom? When, when Christ returns, fully sets up his kingdom here on earth, do you know who's, who's going to reign? We are. Jesus, we will reign with Jesus in that kingdom. In fact, uh, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 2, he says, Don't you realize that someday we believers will judge the world? And then he goes on to say this. In fact, look at verse 3. Don't you realize that we will judge angels? And so the author of Hebrews is getting this, this point out. It's not angels that will be in charge of this, this world when Christ returns. It's the followers of Christ. It's believers in Christ. We will be in charge. You see, it was always God's design. It was always God's plan that, that, that humanity would have dominion on this earth that we would rule and reign over all creation. Genesis 1 is absolutely clear about that. That was God's design and plan. And so the author of Hebrews, he he begins to support this thought. Look at verse 6. It has been testified somewhere. He's quoting Psalm 8. What is man? It's funny. I don't know why he doesn't say Psalm 8. just says somewhere. It's been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor putting everything in subjection under his feet. When I first read this, I was like, this can't be talking about us. This can't be. But he is. He's actually talking about man. They're talking about humanity. You see, the first three verses of Psalm chapter 8, David, who's the author of this psalm, David is looking up and he sees, he's, he's marveling at creation. His mind is being blown as he looks at the stars and at the heavens and at the moon and, and all of creation. And then he turns his thoughts back toward himself. And you know what David does? This is where we read here. He all of a sudden goes, but what am I? That I get. This is amazing, but what is man that you'd be mindful of him? That's what he's saying. Like, he kind of is getting this, like, I don't get it. In fact, he even says, you've even made us lower than the angels. Yet there's this this idea all of a sudden that, that what am I that, God, you would even look upon me? I mean, think about it. Compared to all that we see created, are we all that amazing or fancy? We're not, really, if if we're honest. I read one commentary, I didn't put it in my notes, but one commentary actually said that if you were to basically take all the elements that are in a human, it's worth like 20 bucks. <laughs> right? Melt it all down, you got some water, you got some other, you know, different things. It's just, it's worth nothing. The elements that are in us, it's, we're not all that valuable necessarily. But we are. Do you know why? Because we're made in the image of God. Right? We're made in the image of God. And so made in the image of God, we see this in Genesis that, that God actually crowned Adam and Eve as the king and queen of creation. You ever thought about that? It says here that he made everything subject to humanity. Can you imagine? I mean, it's literally, how many of you have seen the Chronicles of Narnia? Right? And you've got the, right? It's, it's like Narnia where we see these animals, and these other, but they're subject to humans that reign as king and queen. The thought is developed even further. Look at verse 8. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, 
He left nothing outside of his control. Nothing is left outside of the control of humanity. Are you aware of that? Isn't that a little bit crazy to think about? Now, that should kind of blow your mind, but it should also kind of blow your mind in the sense of like, wait a minute, something's wrong here. <laughs> because do you look around and do you see that? Do you, do you see right now everything in subjection to humanity? Is everything in subject to us? No, something's wrong. Something's broken, right? Not everything is under our control, is it? In fact, I would say under man, most things are out of control, right? Most things are probably out of control right now. And that's the idea that the author of Hebrews is getting at. Look at what he says now in verse 8. That's what he's trying trying to make us think about. He says, no, you're right. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, meaning us, humanity, man, right? We, We cannot control fish or birds, or animals. Just ask my dog, right? I, I'll, my dog's name is Mavi, and I'll be like, Mavi, come. She just stares at me. Mavi, don't eat that. Just keeps eating it, right? She does not listen to me, right? I am not the king of my dog. <laughs> That's for sure, right? I mean, humanity has a hard enough time controlling themselves, right? We have a hard enough time controlling ourselves. I mean, just look at this world. Total mess that it's in. Uh, there was a social commentator uh, basically just talking about the days and the times that we're living in from quite a while back. He died, do you remember the 1900s? Any of you can remember the 1900s? <laughs> he died in the 1900s. His name is Will Rogers. And he said this. He said, God made man a little lower than the angels and he has been getting a little lower ever since. <laughs> Isn't that the truth though? That's kind of when you look around, you see, you try to look for the glory of, of humanity, the glory of mankind, and it seems to have all but disappeared, hasn't it? As the author of Hebrews said here, we don't see it. We don't see it. We don't see what God originally intended it all to be. And so, so what happened? What's the problem? You know this. We turned this world. We were given dominion, but we turned this world over to someone else, didn't we? Right? We turned this world over to the one that tricked us. We turned it over to Satan. We turned it over to Satan. So, so why is there war and rape? Why is there disease and famine and all this? Basically, why is there hell on earth? Well, there's hell on earth because Satan is in charge. That's what we did, right? You can't blame the father. We're the ones that blew it. The kids blew it. We gave the keys to Satan. That's why we see the mess that the world is in. But verse 9 tells us where you can get a glimpse of what man was meant to be. Look at verse 9. But we see him. So he brings out this idea. Everything looks like a mess. We don't see what it was supposed to be. And then he goes on to say this. But we see him who's him jesus who for a little while was made lower than the angels namely jesus in case you aren't sure of who he's talking about crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of god he might taste death for everyone we messed up right we messed up that's the problem what's the solution what's the answer to the big mistake we made oh you guys are good at least five of you are. I heard about five of you say Jesus. Right, you're learning. You're, you're getting on here. The same answer downstairs with the kids' church is the same answer up here. Okay, Jesus. That's, if you're ever wondering, just answer Jesus. And what do we see when we see Jesus? Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, yeah, got me there. Okay. Um, yeah, okay. When we see Jesus, we see Jesus. You're right. Okay. But on this earth, when we see Jesus, we see, you know what we see? We, some, we see the earth subject to humanity. 
It's interesting. Think about it. Jesus did some weird stuff. Like, for instance, we've got to pay the temple tax. What do we do? What does Jesus tell him to do? Go fishing. The first fish you catch, it's going to have a coin in its mouth. What is that? Right? That's called dominion. That's control. We've been fishing all night. We haven't caught a thing. Oh, I've got a tip for you. Throw your net onto the other side of the boat. Because just 10 feet over is a whole school of fish. No, what happens? They throw the net over and they say, okay, whatever, because you say to do it. We do. And their nets start breaking. There's so many fish. Right? You see this. You see, you see the wind and the waves obeying his command. You see a rooster that has to crow precisely at the moment that Peter finishes denying Christ for the third time. That's called dominion. That's dominion. We blew it. We are under a curse. Humanity is under a curse. That's what Genesis 3 is very clear about. We're under this curse. But when Jesus died, as verse 9 says, it says he died for everyone. Now in the Greek, do you know what the word everyone means? Yes, well done. It means everyone. It means everyone. When Jesus died for everyone, he did something. He wore a specific crown. Do you know what crown that was that he wore? Of thorns. And what, of course, what was one of the curses that we, uh, it was a representation, it was a symbol, a picture of the curse that we have. The thorns, right? That's what God said. There'll be thorns, there'll be thistles now in the ground. So Jesus wore, he took our curse upon himself. That's what that's picturing. On the cross, he died for everyone. And the curse that we traded for dominion, he put onto his head. That's what Jesus did. But here's the thing. Because he came as a man, because he gave up his life in our place, and because he rose from the dead, that crown of thorns has now been exchanged, this is what the author of Hebrews says, for a crown of glory and honor. So we don't see the world as God meant it to be right now. There's all kinds of horrible mess and confusion. You think of Ukraine, you think of cancer. I mean, how many of you have questions about what's going on in this world? Three of you. The rest of you have it all sorted. It, I'm so jealous that you have it all figured out. I have questions about what's going on in this world. And I have questions going, God, why? Why? What? What? I don't get it. But the author of Hebrews says something else. We don't get it, we don't see it, but we see Jesus. You know, studying this passage about a year ago, before I ever preach a, verse of the, uh, a book of the Bible, I always journal it through in my morning times. I go verse by verse in my morning times often. And, and so I've, I've journaled the book of Hebrews actually a few times. I've got three journals at home that I kind of read through now as I'm preparing the sermons. And I was looking through, about a year ago, I was doing the book of Hebrews in my morning time. And as I was studying this verse, I just felt like the Lord spoke to me about this. And I felt like the Lord said this, Peter, when it comes to problems, you see me. Stop looking at things you don't see. This is what I felt like he was speaking to me. Stop creating things in your mind's eye. I don't know if you have the temptation to do that from time to time. We come up with scenarios. We come up with all the, He's like, no, but we see Jesus. He's like, you've got to look to me. You've got to see me. There's so much we don't understand. But he says, Peter, you see me. You see, the answer isn't found in why. The answer is found in who. We see Jesus, the soon coming king, who has regained dominion through his death because he's fully God and fully man. But secondly, Jesus is greater even in his humanity because he made us family and will bring us to glory. Look at verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, a, a suffering Savior God, does that not sound like a little bit like an oxymoron almost? A suffering Savior God. 
A God that suffers? What, what's that? I mean, could he not have made a way to rescue fallen humanity without having to suffer? If he's God, could he not have? But we know this. In reality, some truths, they just can't fully be understood until experienced, right? You know that. Right? You can read all about pain. I can read all about the experience of childbirth. I can witness childbirth. Twice I have. I've even seen, you know what, you can actually, um, they have these like electrodes they can connect to men. Have you seen this? That stimulate, like simulate rather. Um, they simulate the, the, the uh, contractions and the labor pains of a woman. Have you seen that? I've seen this. And, and I've seen videos of men and they're like, oh, they're screaming, and they're freaking out and, you know, they can't make it. But here's the thing. Now, did they really experience labor? Not one bit. Because you know what? As soon as they stop the, the things, it's like, oh man, that was crazy. I know that, that my wife, after she gave birth to two kids, did not just get up after and be like, that was nuts, but I'm ready to go home. <laughs> right? But you know what I'm talking about. Like, you don't know something until you fully experience it, right? And that's the reality. You don't actually know the, the actual pain until you've tasted it and lived with it for real. And so Jesus, and this is what the author of Hebrews is kind of pointing out, not an angel, but Jesus, Jesus took on flesh and blood, became a human. And he suffered and he lived our pain. He tasted it to the point of death, verse 9 told us. Why? Because that was the only way, this is what it says in the text, the only way for salvation to be perfect or complete is what that idea of the word is giving there. To be full, to be done. It had to happen that way. And here's the, here's the wild thing. Through his humanity and his suffering for us on the cross, we are now joined with Christ. This is massive. This is huge. Look at verse 11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. He who sanctifies, who's, who's the one that sanctifies? Jesus. And we are sanctified. We have one source. It's in Jesus. The word sanctification, it simply is a word that means to be made holy or to be set apart. And that happens through his work, not ours. And so here's the idea here. Jesus is basically saying, here I am, I'm reconciled to God, you can be too. That's what he's saying. He's saying, here I am, I'm righteous before God, you can be too. He, he's saying, here I am, I'm going to heaven, why don't you come with me? That's the idea that's going on here. We've been joined with him. He's bringing us to glory. You see, Jesus suffered so that we wouldn't be trapped and bound by sin, but instead led to glory. And here's the thing, in Christ, this is, this is weird, this is crazy, doesn't even make sense, but in Christ, suffering can be coupled with glory. You know that? Suffering can be coupled with glory. You see, as a believer, the suffering that we endure in this life is the worst we'll ever have it. It's the worst we'll ever have it. As bad as this world might be sometimes, as screwed up as it might be, this is the worst that we're going to have to experience it. Now, for an unbeliever, think about this. This is the best that they'll ever have it. This is the best. For a follower of Christ, this is the worst that we'll ever have it. Because we are destined for glory with Christ. Because by becoming a human, he made us family. And that's the idea of these next verses. We'll just quickly kind of look at them here. Verse 11 says this, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And of course, sisters, you're included in that too. He's not ashamed. I mean, it's common sense. Think about it. How many of you would say, of course I'm not ashamed of Jesus? 
He's perfect. He's, he's loving. He's merciful. He's God. <laughs> I'm not ashamed of him, but he's not ashamed of me? Like, does he really know what he's talking about? Does he really know who I am? Is he blind? Like, does he know? What? But that's the love that he has for us. It's so great that he says, no, I want you to be a part of the family. And, and if you think that's crazy, what the author of Hebrews does now is he kind of backs it up with these three scripture references from Psalm 22 and then Isaiah chapter 8. Verse 11 says this, that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. And so the whole idea here is that Jesus is calling us brothers and, and sisters, of course. And then he speaks of his family. He speaks of community. He speaks of us. He calls us a congregation. I'll be with them is what he's kind of communicating here. I'm going to spend time with them praising the Father. That's what he's getting at here. He's basically saying, we're one body. We're one. They're with me, God. Put them on my tab. It's all taken care of. They're with me. And so he makes us family and he brings us to glory. But thirdly, we see his humanity enabled him to disarm Satan and the fear of death. Verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. This is just simply what we use a fancy word called incarnation for. That God took on flesh and blood. He became like us, became a human. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. You see, because Christ, being God, took on flesh and blood, took on humanity, walked alongside of us, he willingly, you know what he did? He willingly entered into our prison. And then he died in our place to set us free. And here's the thing that we've got to understand. The reason he can set us free is because he didn't deserve death. He didn't deserve death. He was perfect without sin. You know this, Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. Right? The wages of sin is death. Actually, not 6.23. I think that's 623. Oh, I'm also confused now. Anyway, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. So we are sinners. No one here is perfect. I don't care how good you are. We all deserve death. Jesus, he didn't. He was perfect. Death didn't own him. This is why he can make a statement like this in John chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. He says, the reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay down my life of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. How many of you can say that? None of us can, right? None of us can. None of us have the authority over our life to lay it down or take it up again. If someone were to, to barge through those doors right now and shoot me, I, I can't be like, whoa, that ain't gonna touch me. No, they can take my life, can't they? they can, I don't have that same authority that Jesus had because I, death rules over me as a sinner. But for Jesus, death had no right. It had no hold on him because he had no sin. He had to willingly give up his life. After receiving our punishment, after being nailed to the cross, paying the penalty for our sin, what did Jesus do? Look at John chapter 19. This is what he did. Verse 28 and 30 tell us this. Jesus, knowing that all was now completed, said, it is finished. He bowed his head, and then what? But specifically, he didn't just die, he yielded up. He basically said, okay, now, now, now I will die. 
You ever thought, like, if you think about that, technically speaking, if Jesus didn't yield up his spirit, he'd still be hanging on that cross. Technically speaking, I mean, death had no right over his life. Death could not take him. Instead, he yielded up his spirit. And through that work of becoming human for you and for I, and dying in our place and rising again, you know what it says here? That Jesus destroyed Satan's power of death over our lives. The devil has no right. He's got no power. He's got no authority over you if you are in Christ. He destroyed Satan, he says. How many of you, though, would say, it doesn't always feel like Satan's been destroyed in my life? Do you know what I'm talking about? Right? It doesn't always feel that way, does it? doesn't feel like Satan's destroyed. And I think it's sometimes, maybe it's because depending on what translation you have, it might word it a little bit different here. But the Greek word there for destroy, it means to render inoperative or to make of no effect. So we think of destroy being like it's gone, it's annihilated, it's disappeared. But, but the word there is actually specifically talking about to uh, just to make of no effect, to render inoperative. doesn't work anymore. So Satan's still here, he's not gone But here's the reality. In the life of a Christian, all he can do is threaten you. All he can do is roar really loud. But you've got to understand this. He has been declawed when it comes to a Christian. His teeth have been removed. All he can do is gum you. He can, I'm going to get you. And he tries to bite you and you're like, get out of here. He's been rendered inoperative in your life. He's been declawed. He's been detoothed. Revelation 1, 17 to 18 says this. Jesus tells us, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Death has no power over you if you are in Christ. You do not need to fear death. You do not need to fear death. If you have a fear of death... I would love to pray for you, honestly. As a Christian, we should not fear death. That's different than having a fear of dying in the sense of like, well, I don't want to die that way. That's different. That's something totally different. But to have a fear of death, no. Death, death, death has no power over you anymore. That's why, that's why the Apostle Paul could say crazy stuff like this in Philippians 1.21, that for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. See, death, he understood this. Death now, it's just like a butler. It's a servant. Death just simply takes us from this body to our next one. That's all it does. We do not need to fear death anymore. Sandy Adams, I like how he puts it. He says, death no longer means the cessation of life. Death no longer robs us of what matters. It separates us for a time, but not forever. In Christ, death is no longer a punishment for sin. It's a graduation to greater blessing, higher glory, a deeper awareness of God's presence. That's the truth. He's defeated, destroyed the power of Satan and the fear of death in our lives. And finally, Christ is greater even in his humanity because it enables him to be a merciful and faithful high priest who can help us when tempted. Verse 16, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Now, angels, they can't identify with us in our temptation and in our needs and our weakness. They're these pure spirit beings. They haven't had to suffer, right? But Jesus, he can identify with us in our weakness and in our needs, can't he? Look at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest 
in the service of God. You see, a high priest, the high priest had two specific requirements that were put upon them in their role. The high priest had to do two very specific things. One first thing they had to do, they had to be faithful to God. They had to represent God well, but then they also had to be merciful towards the people. They had these two things that they had to balance, representing God's truth clearly and boldly, but also they had to have the ability to empathize with God's people, with man's needs. And and here's the problem is that most people, you know this because I struggle with it too, but we tend to kind of err on one side or the other. If I want to be faithful to God, speak boldly about the truth, I tend to be judgmental. Yet on the other hand, if I want to be really merciful and and sympathize with with the needs of my fellow humans, I tend to sometimes get a little bit lax on God's commands and demands, right? And so I struggle with this, but not Jesus. Jesus fits the role perfectly, faithful to God and merciful to man. In fact, John chapter 1 tells us that he was full of what? Grace and truth. Do you see that? That's depicting the merciful grace and truth, faithful to God, the perfect high priest. You see, nothing makes you more compassionate toward another person than to walk in their shoes. Isn't that the truth? Oh my goodness, I've been learning this lesson so much in the last number of years where I can be so judgmental towards somebody. Well, I, well why aren't they doing that? Why aren't they doing this? Well, da, 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 da. And then I have something that's maybe not, maybe not even remotely close sometimes to what they're walking through and I go, oh man, it's a whole different story when the shoe's on my foot. Whole different thing when all of a sudden you're walking through what they're walking through. And nothing makes you more compassionate than to have to walk in someone else's shoes. And that is, that is what Jesus did in his incarnation. God walked in our shoes. That's grace. He was full of grace and truth. And that's the grace side. That made Jesus a merciful high priest for us to speak on our behalf. Think about it. If God in Christ never added humanity to his deity, he would not know what it is to say, I know what it's like. I know what it feels like. Right? He, he would not be able to say, I know what it's like to be tired or to be stressed or to be tempted or hungry or despised or to have to suffer or to be rejected or to have to die. He would not be able to say that, but, but he did add humanity, didn't he? You see, we must never diminish the divinity of Christ, but we also must never diminish the humanity of Christ. We've got to be careful of that. You see, there's a God in heaven who can truly say, I know what it's like. I know what you're going through. He can honestly say that. Why? Because he went through it. He knows the pain and the sorrow and the suffering. So therefore, he can say, I will be merciful. I will be merciful to you in whatever you've walking, you're walking through because I've been there too. He, he went to every extent possible to be able to speak that, to be able to live that, to know that for each and every one of us. To be able to say to us, you can come to me because you will find mercy when you come to me. You see, never, ever will Jesus say to you, oh man, I, I, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not sure, I don't, I don't know. You're on your own there. Never. He'll, no, he will be merciful to us. He'll be merciful to us. So he's a merciful high priest, but he's also a faithful high priest. Because the perfect God took on on human flesh, he's the the perfect, merciful, and faithful high priest. Look at verse 17. It goes on to say something specific. It says, to make what? What's the word there? Propitiation for the sins of the people. How many of you use that word pretty regularly? (laughs) Yeah, pretty common. Yeah, Cliff, you're using it all the time, hey? 
right? You're, you're making propitiation for your kids. For, oh, you're making propitiation for Deneo. <laughs> Not good. <laughs> no, it's for the kids to Deneo. <laughs> propitiation, crazy word, weird word. We don't use this word really. What, is it, what does it mean? It basically means this. It means the full and satisfying payment for our sins when it comes to speaking to God. The full and satisfying payment for our sins. See, the reality of this is that, that God, you've maybe read this word in the Bible about the wrath of God. It says that. It speaks of that specifically, that if you are a sinner, the wrath of God is upon mankind. That's what it says. The wrath of God. And what Jesus did was that he fully satisfied the payment that was due to satisfy the wrath of God. That's what that word means. Propitiation for the sins of, his, of the people. The wrath of God when we sinned was fully met in what Jesus did on the cross. In fact, what did Jesus say when he hung on the cross? He used a specific word, to telestai. To telestai, which, which means we translate it as it is finished. Do you know what it literally means? Paid in full. Paid in full. The propitiation for our sins. He satisfied the bill, basically is what that means. And so here's the thing. Verse 18 tells us this. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. How many of you know what it's like to suffer under temptation? Does anyone here know what it's like to suffer under temptation? Some of you, right? Yeah, you're like, yeah, I've dieted before. I know exactly what that's. That's not what I'm talking about, right? To suffer under temptation. We all know that temptation goes much deeper than dieting, of course, right? It's a serious thing. The cravings and the desires of the flesh, that if you've ever wanted to please God, that that if you've ever wanted to be a, a, a righteous man before God or a righteous woman before the Lord, to honor your family, you know what temptation is. You know. Well, Jesus knows too. However, there's a, something specific that the author of Hebrews uses here. He says that he actually suffered when tempted. He suffered when tempted. What does that really mean? What does it mean that Jesus suffered when tempted? Think about that. And some of us say, yeah, I've suffered under temptation. And definitely we have. But what it really means is this, is that it was not easy for Jesus. He suffered when tempted. We tend to think, well, he was God. It was easy. Not at all. He was fully man. You see, here's the reality. Let me put it this way. We know what it is. We know what it is to experience the release or the relief of temptation. Do we? We do. How do you experience relief from temptation? There's a number of ways, but probably one of the key ways that we experience relief from temptation, we give in. We give in. And do you know what happens? The temptation, the craving, it's gone. It's, it disappears, doesn't it? We give in. Honestly, many of us don't suffer when tempted. We just give in. Right? I'm tempted. I'm tempted, if we put it in the dieting terms, I'm tempted to eat that. Fine, I'm just going to eat it. You put it in a heavier term, it's like, oh, I'm tempted. I'm really tempted. I want to look at what I shouldn't look at. And I click. The temptation has been satisfied. The craving is gone. I really want to speak about that person that kind of demeans them and brings them low, and I know I shouldn't, but I'm going to do it anyway. Do we suffer in our temptation? Not always. Because we give in to temptation. Jesus never gave in to temptation. He felt temptation at a crushing level that we will never, ever know. He faced all kinds of temptations. Think about it. To take the easy way out. To not fulfill his calling. 
to not go to the cross. Think about Satan in the wilderness trying to tempt him. Saying, listen, I'll give you all these things. Just avoid what you're supposed to do. But I'll give you the world. I'll give you all the power. I'll give it all. Think about his own family that thought he was crazy. Come on, Jesus. Get, what are you, nutball? Let's go. Time to come home. His own family thought he was nuts. Think about Peter. Right? Peter trying to tempt him from going to the cross. Never. God forbid, he said. Forbid yourself, Jesus. That's what he's saying. You can't go to the cross. You can't die. The temptations. Think about, think about in the garden, the agony that he was under to the point where it says that, that he actually, and uh, I don't know if it's in Hebrews where it speaks about, but that he actually, none of us have had to suffer to the point of shedding of blood. Jesus suffered under temptation to the point that his, his blood vessels began to burst with the pressure and he began to sweat drops of blood. Agonizing as he's saying, Father, if there's another way, if there's some other way, so broken under the pressure, was he tempted to, to do something else? 100%. Think about when he was even hanging on the cross. He could have had legions of angels come and set him free to not have to walk through that, but he didn't. He suffered through the temptations as a human. I like the example, um, commentator Kent Hughes, he says this, he says, think of it this way. I think it's a good way to explain it. Which bridge has undergone the greatest stress? The one that collapses under its first load of traffic or the one that bears the same traffic morning and evening, year after year? Which one has undergone, undergone the most stress? Even a bridge that collapses under 20 years of traffic. The stress is relieved all of a sudden as it breaks. But that bridge that holds up for year after year after year to traffic after traffic after traffic, right? The stress that it's under. And so what does all this mean for us? Look at verse 18. We'll wrap it up here. It means that he is able to help those who are being tempted. Do you know why? It's because he understands. He actually, think about this, he actually understands more than we do. He gets it more than we get it. More, more than a friend gets it. And I know we have a hard time believing that because he's God. No, he gets it more than we do. He suffered under temptation and so he can help us. You know, the word help there in the Greek, it actually, it actually literally means running to the cry of a child. You ever felt that way with your temptation? He wants to come and he wants to help in your temptation. You know, there's really two things that this verse tells us. It says, first of all, that he is able. He is able. If I give in to temptation, it's not because it was Jesus' fault. Right? It wasn't because he was able. Oh, I, I trusted in Jesus, but he let me down. Right? No, that's, that's, he is able. He will never let you down. The second thing is this, is that we read in that passage that he is able to help those who are being tempted, which we don't really like. I would prefer to say something like, he is able to totally take away the temptation. He says, no, you, I'm able to help you when you're tempted. I want it to be taken away, but that's not always how it works. Instead, he'll help us in the midst of it. That's what he does. So the question is really, do you want his help? I mean, sometimes, if I'm honest, I don't. And I crumble under the weight. But if you do, all you have to do is ask. 
And I promise you, he will be there. 1 Corinthians 10.13 promises us that. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. We all face the same temptations. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Ever. Period. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. I know this. When I have succumbed to temptation, which I have done many times, I'm a professional succumber to temptation. I know this. I, I can look at all those moments, and I, there's always been a way out. But I haven't taken it. I haven't chosen it. Instead, I've filled the flesh and crumbled. But that's why he came in his humanity, so that he can help you and I whenever and however we need it. And so as we close this morning, maybe you have failed. Maybe, maybe you have given into temptation. Listen, we all do. I want you to know this, that there is hope at the cross. At the cross where he died to cover your sin for when you fall to temptation. There's hope. There's hope for each and every one of us that fall to temptation. But I also... I also want us to know this, that it doesn't, it doesn't end there that there's just hope after we fall to temptation because he says here that he will come alongside you to help in the midst of your temptation. You don't have to fall. And so this morning, you know, this world and, and, and the mess that it's in and the temptations that we face on a daily basis, you know, all that may feel and it may just look like a mess. But I want to remind us, like the author of Hebrews does, but we see Jesus. Look to Jesus. Keep your eyes on him today. So I want to pray for us as we close this morning. And let's look to Jesus in whatever need we have. Father, I right now, just, I just want to pray for each and every person here, whether they're joining us online or whether they're here in-house today, God. Lord, we know what temptation is like because your word promises us, it tells us, it makes it so clear that nothing, no temptation we face is unique to ourselves. It's common to man. It's common to all of us. We all face the same things, the same struggles. Lord, I pray for those in this room or online or even those that might be watching this at a, at a later time or later date. God, I ask that you would, for those that have fallen to temptation, Lord, we can feel so guilty. I thank you, God, that we're gonna eventually get to the place in Hebrews where it, where it speaks about that you even cleanse us of a guilty conscience. And Lord, we can feel so guilty for the times that we've given in. We can feel so guilty for the mistakes that we've made. Lord, we want to first of all say we are sorry. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Lord, this flesh, oh, I hate it. But Lord, I thank you that you make a way, that you prove that it can be done. And so I pray, Jesus, that for any of us that are just in a place right now of just feeling like garbage because of temptation we've fallen into again, Lord, that we would come to the cross and that we would find mercy, a merciful high priest who gave his life in our place because he knows what it's like. And so now we have a high priest that says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Lord, help us to simply to come to you, to find hope, to find strength, to find peace in you, Jesus. But Lord, I also pray that you would help us in the midst of our temptations and in the midst of our struggles to look to you. Jesus, help us to see you, to keep our eyes on you to fix our eyes on you, Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Help us, God, to do that. 
Lord, we love you, and we're so grateful that, that, that we can truly come to you and you get it. You understand. God, just help us to, to be people that do that in the moments when we're tempted to, just, to, to, come, to come and say, Lord, help. We love you, and we're so grateful for your mercy, for your grace. We're, we're grateful as well for your truth, that you held it up for us. We give you all the glory now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Blessings on you. May you experience the power of Christ in your life this coming week to overcome temptation, to overcome fear, to walk in his love. Blessings on you guys. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.